Let's continue our study in the London Baptist Confession of Faith. We're going to finally finish chapter 22, which has to do with religious worship and the Lord's Day. And I was a bit surprised when I <clears throat> excuse me, looked at my notes and saw that this is the sixth installment on this. But worship is such an important topic. If you get worship wrong, you're going to get everything wrong. We need to know who we are to worship, why we are to worship, how we are to worship, and all of those kinds of things. In the last couple weeks, we've talked about the when and the how. And so uh, we want to finish up with paragraph eight. But by way of review, we've talked about that this is addressing new covenant worship for those of us who are in Christ and in the um, new covenant, and so old covenant worship was in many ways different. Some of the principles were the same, and we learned that it's regulated by Scripture itself. And so uh, we are only to uh, worship as is prescribed in the Word of God. Um, paragraph two talks about the object is the triune God. <coughs> Excuse me, not angels. And then we go through a mediator. We talked about the duty of prayer and the role of prayer in our worship and and the role of giving thanksgiving praises and singing praises uh, to uh, to God. And then also the importance of preaching and preaching is um, vital because that communicates God's truth and the the non Um, revelatory way of prophecy declaring God's truth as we excuse me learned last Sunday and so the reading the hearing of God's word the reading of the holy scriptures are all to be done in reverence and we don't pick and choose what we preach but we preach the whole counsel of God as Paul um, does as well the entire written word of God Uh, Paragraph six talked about the place of worship and where is that place for us in the new covenant? Uh, It's kind of a trick question. So John four said that really we can worship anywhere and at any time on the one hand, but then also that particularly in, excuse me, in the church. And, And so specific locations such as a temple or you know some altar or whatever are abolished uh, in the new covenant and the focus is not geographical but more spiritual and that's what jesus says woman believe me an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in jerusalem will you worship the father you worship what you do not know we worship what we know for salvation is from the jews now is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth And such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. But Jesus clearly says, not on this mountain or in Jerusalem. And so we have access. And so um, the church, of course, is the New Testament temple made up of the various um, uh, congregation, local congregations. The Church Universal is made up of local congregations all around the world. And then we considered um, the aspect of the Lord's Day being a perpetual, or how does the confession put it? It's a positive, moral, perpetual 
commandment binding on all men in all ages. And so uh, we began to unpack that. We looked at the fact that it's a creation ordinance. And why is that important? What other creation ordinances are there that endure today? Marriage. Marriage is the big one, right? Work. Work is there. But also that one in seven principle. And God set, you know, he could have created everything in one day, but he purposely took six days and rested the seventh day to teach us that rhythm of a one in seven pattern. And and it specifically says, and we looked at length, that, that God blessed it. That is, it was, this is good for man. And Jesus echoes that in Mark 2, right? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And But then it, he sanctified it. Mm-hmm. He set it apart as holy the seventh day. So it's something that is sacred. And so as we come to the last paragraph, which is paragraph 8, uh, why don't we go ahead and read that? Um <clears throat> Steve, you want to read that? And if you have it there. Paragraph 8. The Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering their common affairs aforehand, do not only observe and holy rest all day from their own works, words, and thoughts, about their worldly employment and rec- employment and recreation, but are also taken up for the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. Mm, amen. Let's go ahead and pray. <clears throat> Father, we do just commit this time to you that you would give us understanding and insight from your word as we would seek to unpack it and we thank you for this faithful summary of your word our confession of faith and we ask your blessing upon our time together as men in jesus name amen Amen. so one of the proof verses that they have is isaiah 58 and why don't we just go ahead and turn there isaiah 58 and I think we would all agree that those who find their delight in God will also delight in his worship, and in particular, his day of worship. And if we are delighting in his worship, it is evidence that we are delighting in who God is. We're delighting in him. So Isaiah 58, beginning in verse 13. If because of the Sabbath... You turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable and honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word. Then you will take delight in the Lord. Just put a sign in there. So, I mean, there's a lot here, right? It's if because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure. And notice how, how um, really through the prophet, how it, God calls it my holy day. This is something that is his, mm-hmm. my holy day. 
He repeats it. Call the Sabbath a delight. It's not a burden. It's not a drudgery. It is an absolute delight and privilege to be able to come and to worship him in the way that he has designed. And honor it, and part of how we honor it, as it says here, desisting of your own ways and seeking your own pleasure and even speaking your own word, then you will take delight in the Lord. So if you do those things, then you're taking delight in the Lord. And Walter Chantry has an excellent book called The Sabbath of Delight. Very simple read about the size of that Spurgeon book right there. Um, we, it was on the back table a few weeks ago, um, so we're trying to kind of have that available. So keep an eye out. You can snag that and read it and, and then put it back for somebody else. But it's an excellent treatment because uh, what happens in our society is that, um, you know, anytime there's, there's rules or, you know, something that's regulated, people want to complain. I want my own freedom. I want to be the captain of my own salvation and all of that kind of stuff. And so when it comes to like, well, no, on Sunday, you really should worship the Lord. You know, you really should worship, you know, this way. But what happens is, is that those that are not walking closely with God will say, what a burden. Much like the children of Israel did, as you see through the wilderness wanderings. They complained, they grumbled. But taking this verse, that really it's a delight and you see the positive things. um, it's It's an important way to think about that. Um, we also talked about, I should have had this before that, but um, just the where it says that it's a positive, moral, perpetual commandment. We discussed the fact that the fourth commandment occurs in the Ten Commandments. Both times they're given in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5. And, um, and what, what's unique about the, we would call that a moral law, the ten words, right, the Decalogue, compared to the civil law, the ceremonial law, of which, you know, there's 15, 18 chapters, however many in Exodus, whereas this is just part of one chapter, but there's something unique about the Decalogue. There's several things unique about it. What were those? Sweetened by God himself. Well, written with the finger of God. And written on what? Paper? Stone. Stone, right? So, you know... The fact that it's 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 written in stone is also just an implied permanency to it. It's not this is not something temporal. Even when Moses came down and shattered him, you know, he had to get more tablets, and you know, um, and then where were they kept? These tablets, the Ark, right? So it's a you know in a very prized place, written with the finger of God. Um, Spoken by the voice of God. We saw that in Exodus 20, that the Lord is actually speaking. Mm -hmm. And then furthermore, you know, the New Testament informs our understanding of the Old Testament. And what do we see the New Testament writers doing? They quote it. They're quoting it, and they're not not quoting it as, that was for Israel. (laughs) Like, aren't you glad that... You know, no, it's they're quoting it as authoritative. They're giving moral commands and the basis for you have heard that it was said or it would or quote whatever uh, scripture it would be. And so um, points to the, the goodness of the law. You know, Paul refers to, you know, not that we're under the law in the sense of being saved by it, but 
not get ridding, not getting rid of it because it's good because it's the word of God and the word of God is good. And a lot of times you see people who want to get rid of the law and say, well, we're not under the law, but they forget about the moral the moral aspect, yeah. It, in which we're able to keep that, right? we're able to live by that. No, it doesn't save us. No, um, you know, we don't follow it to somehow be in good standing with God for salvation, but we do follow it in obedience to God and what he has commanded us. In our sanctification, we desire to... Um, want to emulate that, but never for justification. And, I mean, the book of Galatians points that out. Romans 7, you know, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. But you'll hear people misrepresent, like, for example, Romans 6, 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And people will just quickly like yeah. just quote that and say, See, I'm yeah. under grace. We're in we're in the era of grace. Well, yes, as far as salvation goes, but that doesn't disregard, you know, something that's already been given. And so we need to understand that. So so in the Decalogue, of course, it was the seventh day, right? And it was a picture of you know, God created everything in six days. He rested on the seventh day. But there's a change in the New Testament to the first day of the week. And we began talking about this last time. And we all know that change is because of what happened on that day. Resurrection. The resurrection of Christ, right? And so there is a shift. Um, and all four, you know, the Gospels are very unique. I mean, you have the synoptic Gospels, which are... Um, there's parallels, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but there's a whole lot of differences in those as well. And then John is altogether different. But yet, in all four Gospels, you have the account of the resurrection and the exact same Greek phrase on the first day of the week, on the first day of the week. And we'll see that in other texts, too, as we go through. Um Evangelical Dictionary of Theology says this just in regard to the name or in, in regard to this. The name Sunday came through the to the Romans through the Egyptians who early adopted a weekdays after the sun, moon and five planets. The first day of the week to the Romans was the day of the sun. In the course of time, however, the Christians designation of the Lord's Day came to displace the term Sunday throughout the whole Roman Empire. And so even that Sunday, the first day of the week, the name, you know, the days on that first day of the week, Christians referred to it, this is the Lord's Day, <laughs> more than, um, you know, Sunday. And then how do you say it in Spanish? Domingo. Domingo, yeah, that's right, yeah. Domingo, I was trying to remember that. Um, oh, yeah, I have it right here. Okay. So the other thing is, now, we, we can't point to one verse that says, you know, Paul doesn't say in Romans chapter 17, oh, and by the way, the Lord's Day worship uh, is the new covenant fulfillment of the fourth commandment and the moral law. Like, there's not a particular verse that says that, but it's a totality of verses that communicate that by implication. And we're going to kind of go, uh, we're going to walk through some of this and what I'm calling apostolic precedents, uh, precedents that they have done. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 16 first. 
First Corinthians 16 and verse 2. You want to read it? On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Okay, so what's what's being said here? It has to, I'm sorry, we should have read verse one. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so do you also. So he's talking about final instructions as he's wrapping up the letter in regards to collections of the saints. Um, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put aside and save um, as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. So um, the idea of putting aside and saving, first of all, this is a verse that speaks of tithing, I think, because, you know, there's collections. I think uh, it's biblical and good to tithe. Um, We don't, you know, I mean, that's, uh, I think most mature Christians understand that. But notice the phrase on the first day of the week. Now, we have to think, what is the whole, we could probably read the ESV Study Bible introduction of uh, Corinthians, but a lot of Corinthians, uh, the letter of, uh, to the Corinthians, is the teaching based on what? <clears throat> so he's writing to a particular church, a church that has a lot of problems, abuses within the church that are being corrected. And so... Um, you know, I mean, everything from getting drunk at the Lord's Supper to, um, you know, treating the poor with contempt and rushing in and, you know, during the feasts that they would have to an abuse of gifts and all of this. And so um, he's been correcting a church in general. And so he doesn't say in, in chapter 16 of verse two, oh, and by the way. Um, you know, it's the new covenant now and you should worship on the first day of the week. He doesn't have to say that when he says on the first day of the week, as you, you know, put aside to save, um, it's, there's an assumption that that is the day of worship in other words. And so he doesn't have to delineate that. Oh, and by the way, don't worship on the seventh day. Now worship on the first day. It's just, it's, it's assumed here. Um, and so, and that's the same term that's used uh, in the Gospels, Sabaton, in the original. Now let's go to Acts 20. Acts 20. <clears throat> Acts 20 and verse 7, the first part of it. Once again, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together, To break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. He prolonged his message until midnight. Um, It goes on to see that, or I mean, if you read that, that, that's where the man falls out of the window, falls asleep, (laughs) because Paul went on preaching so long. So there's a couple things that are happening here on the first day of the week. Um, And one is that they're gathered together to break bread. Most theologians think that's a reference to the Lord's Supper, which was central to early church New Covenant worship and should be central to our worship 
today, and we seek to make that essential as well. And also, Paul is preaching. It's not that you can't preach on other days of the week, but on the first day of the week in particular, there there is preaching going on. And so here, once again, you have the first day of the week being used. Now, there's another another term that's used in the New Testament twice that I think builds a very strong case. And let's go to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, somebody read verses 9 and 10. I, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind I need a loud voice like a trumpet. So, um, John is exiled to Patmos because of what? The word of God, the testimony of Jesus. He's a fellow partaker of tribulation. That gives us a, an indication of why he's writing this letter and the seven churches that are addressed um, to bring encouragement in the midst of affliction. This is probably in the late 90s where the emperor worship was forced by um, the Romans that even Christians had to offer an incense or uh, onto the emperor. And so there was persecution. And so it says, I'm a fellow partaker in tribulation. Um, so but he's exiled. But notice what he says here as he sets out to write. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Okay, I was on the Spirit on the, on the Lord's day. Now here you have a shift from the first day of the week to a particular calling of it, Lord's day. Now the word, the, the normal word for Lord, like for, for example, look up in verse eight, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. So what's the Greek word, you guys, some of you know it, for Lord? Kurios, right? It's a very common word, occurs over 700 times throughout the New Testament, right? So that's a common Greek word that just means um, master um, or owner uh, or the one in charge. Um, even some of the parables have the man that was in charge, like he's curious, he's a lord, lower or lowercase l, lord. And then, of course, refers to the Lord God many, many times. But the term that's used here is related to that, has a similar root. Um, but it, the meaning is pertaining to belonging to the Lord or the Lord's possession. It's kuriakos, and so it has a kurios, in the, but it, the ending that's added there. And so it's not just a, 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 the Lord's day. It's the day that is owned by the Lord. It's kariake amorea. As how you would say the Lord's day in this particular term, it is the Lord's possession. It's not just any day, but it's the Lord's in particular. And so it's a strong exegetical evidence here that he's not just saying I was on the spirit on the first day of the week, but I was, I'm, I was in the spirit 
on the day, the day which is especially the Lord's day, which we know to be the first day of the week. Now let's turn to the only other New Testament example where that word occurs, and that's in fact the first Corinthians. <laughs> Sorry, we're flipping around a little bit. This is good stuff. First Corinthians 11. <clears throat> we have the account of the Lord's Supper. Verse 23, what I received from the Lord, that which also I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, if we look up just a little bit above that, not very far, he's talking about Christian order, the beginning of the chapter. He's talking about men and women, which we looked at um, in verses 8 and 9. I don't want to distract you from that, but in verse 17, 18, um, there's divisions. Um, We can close that. There's divisions, but then look in verse 20. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's. Is it not to eat the Lord's supper? For in your eating, each one of you takes a supper first. One is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and to drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. In verse 20, the same term is used in regards to the supper. So you have the only two New Testament occurrences, the Lord's special possession, referring to a particular day, what we believe to be the first day of the week, um, especially with the late date of Revelation being assumed, and then here in regards to the Lord's supper. Now, is... In a sense, does every supper belong to the Lord? Yes, we pray before our meals and all of this. But this is something in particular that this is a supper that is especially possessed by the Lord. It's his possession. It's belonging to him. And as he introduces it, I mean, there's a rebuke of the abuses that were going on in the church, um, you know, rushing to the front of the line to eat and, and um, you know people are coming hungry some are drunk all of this this kind of stuff these abuses which you know probably indicate that there was some type of a feast where the gathering of the church would come together um, but you have this term and then in verse 23 there's a shift to where this is what I've received from the Lord of how we should observe the Lord's Supper it's not just any supper and then look at the warning in verse 29 and 30 for he who eats and drinks eats i'm sorry verse 28 let a man examine himself and in so doing he is to eat the bread and to drink the cup for he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly for this reason many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep and so, you know, he gives the warn their abuses there, uh, verse 20 to 22, uh, calls us the, the Lord's Supper in particular. Then he gives what he's received from the Lord, which is 
interesting because the Gospels had not been written yet. <laughs> this is in the mid-50s. And so this was by special revelation from God to Paul, as this is what I've received. Um, again, the gospel is not being written, but then you have this idea of when you don't examine yourself, when you are abusing the table, there are many among you that are weak and sick, and some have even died. And so you see the seriousness of this particular Supper. It is the Lord's Supper, and it's something that's not to be abused. Any thoughts or questions on the revel? Well, on anything that we've covered, but Revelation one and and First uh, Corinthians eleven here. There's strong exegetical evidence that there's something special about the day in Revelation one and the supper in First Corinthians eleven. I think it's interesting that John would say the Lord's Day, you know, um, considering he could have said the Sabbath, but he didn't. He said the Lord's Day, which was shown a uniqueness uh, at that time, you know, to show that it was actually practiced as well, because uh, he actually used the term in Revelation 1.10. Or even a, a evolving, like, in other words, if you think of, I mean, you've had the Old Testament Sabbath. You have Sabbaton used, in, you know, in regards to the first day of the week um, and so forth. But then now, um, you know, now you're in the night, like 40, 50, 60 years after Christ has been resurrected. It's we don't call that Sabbath anymore. Confession does call it worship in the Sabbath day. I've, I've crossed it out and put worship in the Lord's day because I like Lord's day better. It's a New Testament term. Um, I think and, you see some differences even in Acts when uh, the church, the foundation was being uh, laid for the church by the apostles. And the scripture teaches that the apostles still went on the Lord's day and they went in to the um, um, synagogue stuff early on. Yeah, yeah and they, they preached the gospel. Uh, Paul did it on many Sabbaths. And then they got together on the first day of the week and they met right. together. They broke bread together. So you see this transitioning from Sabbath to the Lord's day actually taking from the seventh day to the first day. To, yeah, to, that's right. Yeah, to, yeah, seventh day for, yeah. absolutely. So you see this transitioning happening. We kind of dealt a little bit with this and, and we're in Acts 18. So mm-hmm. We kind of dealt with the same thing. Good. Uh, when we was going through this. So. Mm-hmm. Well, some people would object by quoting uh, a New Testament verse or two. Does anybody have any idea what that might be? Object to what? Object to, well, everything you said is nice and dandy, but don't you know Colossians 2? <laughs> and so let's go to Colossians 2. And, and again, this gets to what we talked about as far as how... Um, oh, where's that? My notes. How... There's really two groups of people of uh, the when to worship. And the one group says any day that we all are off work, it could be a Tuesday night that, you know, this could be our Sunday worship or, uh, you know, a Friday night because, hey, Sunday's my surfing day. You know, there's that group. And then there's the other group that says, no, there's actually a designated day of worship. Well, or quoting Romans 6:14, but here, you know, so there's. There's a group that would quote this. So let's look here at Colossians 2 and verse 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink 
or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. See, there you go. Don't judge me if I want to worship on Friday. It says, let no one be be your judge. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Paul is talking about going back under the law and and (laughs) dealing with, you know, uh, things relative to the law, the Judaizers, trying to bring people back under the law, and they was under grace. And Paul is dealing with this idea of calendars and, you know, um, actual thing. Um, the Judaizers would like them to like to bring them back under which law? Well, the Sabbath. Well, more than no, more than that. And, and then the uh, food and food. It says right. food and drinks. So you know, dietary, so dietary, and uh, ceremonial. ceremonial. Okay, all of that. And yeah. so it's not just they're, they're not like oh we're advocating for the moral law mm-hmm. because that's a moral perpetual. Uh, commandments, um, but no, it's they're trying to bring them back under. No, if you want to be a Christian, you need to be like a Jewish Christian. You needed to have all of these. In fact, um, the the way it's phrased here, festival, new moon, or a Sabbath day, um, we see in the Old Testament quoted several times in reference to the ceremonial law. And we would agree the ceremonial laws completely fulfilled all the, I mean, Christ fulfilled all the laws, but the moral law continues to abide. The ceremonial laws done away with. Um, we can just go to Second Chronicles, or I can flip there and read it if you like. But Second um, Chronicles chapter two. And this is just one. Yes. Behold, I am about to build a house for the name of the Lord God, dedicating it to him to burn fragrant incense before him, to set out the showbread continually, to offer burnt offerings morning and evening on Sabbaths, on new moons and on appointed feast of the Lord our God, this being required in Israel. And so you've got this phraseology of the burnt offerings the the sabbaths the new moons and the feast all under that umbrella uh first chronicles has it i think there's about at least four or five places where um it's quoted like that in a similar fashion um let's see if i can find this one yeah same thing yeah, yeah chapter 23 of first chronicles same thing the on the sabbaths the new moons the fixed Festivals and the number set by the ordinance concerning them continually before the Lord. And so there, uh, the Judaizers were trying to bring in this legalism of putting them back under the law. If you, the circumcision and all of that, that you have to have, you know, and that's what Paul says in Romans 14 or Romans 2, right? That circumcision is not of the flesh, it's of the heart, right? It's not outward ceremonial type things. The other place that people would object is, of course, Romans 14. And Romans 14 is a very similar situation because he's writing to Jews and Gentiles, right? You see that in chapter 1, 2, and 3. I'm not going to go to chapter 1, 2, and 3 of Romans. I know you guys are probably pretty familiar with that, but um, chapter 14 does speak about Christian liberty, um, talks about diet, 
drink and daze in this whole chapter, just to read the first few verses. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Um, It goes on and on. Verse 5, one person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his mind. Now, that verse 5, the first part, um, one day above another, um, another regards every day alike, is not setting aside (laughs) the importance of the Lord's Day. And I've heard this verse quoted as well. You've got to study the entire chapter in its context of the entire book and he's dealing with the same thing the jews and gentiles and and there were the jews would say you'd, you'd have to come under these types of things and so um i'm going to leave it there but have you guys heard people quote those verses mm-hmm. okay yeah. my question on that because uh, um well we all agree it's the lord's day that we worship but uh, how about uh, for us, uh, for example, we're military. Sometimes you have to work on, on the Lord's Day. Well, let's, we're going to get to the practical uh, meat of those kinds of okay, things. Okay. And uh, so let's come back to that. Um, I just want to give one more verse in Psalm 118. And then we're going to uh, Psalm 118. And then we're going to talk about some of those practical things. Um, as we round off. So Psalm 118 is pretty phenomenal. Um, It's the familiar verse, verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. We know that verse. It's quoted how many times in the New Testament? Anybody know? I think it's four, at least four. Um, So it's it's one of the most oft-quoted verses in the New Testament. And, you know, again, you picture a quarry, um, they're hewing stones out, and there's inspectors to look at the stones, and here's a particular stone that's not quite plumb, it's a little off, and so the builders, and oftentimes this would be on a hill, they would say, rejected, pass, rejected, and it would be thrown down and go down a hill. Well, the analogy, of course, is, I mean, the fulfillment of this is what? That this is speaking of Christ. The builders are the Jewish leaders who rejected him, said he's rejected. He's not the true Messiah. But look at the rest of this, because this is phenomenal. And um, some theologians, a few theologians point this out. Jonathan Edwards makes allusion to this as well. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Mm-hmm. Now, how many times have you seen verse 24 on a card or, you know, like somewhere, you know, this is the day, you know, mm-hmm. let us rejoice and be glad in it and all of that. But could this be, and this is a a Davidic, um, um, messianic 
uh, psalm, could it be that that's, uh, Edwards makes the case that that is actually a prophecy of the Lord's Day. Because it's the it's based on Christ being the rejected one. Um, it's the Lord's doing this. It's marvelous in his eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And let's go to Acts 4. And then um, verse 25, save us. <laughs> oh, yeah, Lord, do save. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But Acts 4 is fascinating because Peter quotes this text in relation to the death and resurrection of Christ. The first day of the week, we are celebrating not necessarily when we're thankful for the atonement and the death of Christ, but we're not coming together to celebrate his death. Oh, I'm glad that God poured right. But we're celebrating what? That he's conquered death through his own death. He's conquered death. And that's exactly what Peter says in verse. Let's just pick it up at verse eight. And let's have somebody read somebody else read <laughs> i've been eight verse eight to uh, 11 acts four acts four acts four eight and eleven okay. then peter filled with holy spirit said to them rulers of the people and elders if we are being examined today concerning good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Cornerstone. Yes. So <clears throat> he's speaking to the rulers and the elders. He, and notice it, it's the preface with that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. I guess you see that a lot when the they're preaching, but oftentimes when there's um, new profound truth being communicated. So he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's speaking to the rulers and the elders. And he says we're on trial because of the sick man that's been made well. But then look at verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified his death, but whom God raised from the dead, this man stands here before you today. And then. Literally, this one is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And so he's he even twists. Uh, that's not a good word. He, he modifies this verse by saying, you were the builders who rejected Christ. But notice how he can right before he quotes that. He's talking about Christ who was crucified and who was raised. And so, um, you know, he doesn't quote that this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. But he alludes to that text, which could have a connection because this is Christ who was raised. That's why we celebrate on the first day of the week. So whatever you think of that, I thought it was worth at least sharing that and uh, maybe and, having a. And, you know, just like in the Old, Old Testament, we just read here. 
uh, you see this, uh, this theme of salvation again following right after uh, Christ being the cornerstone. That's right, yeah. yeah. Go, go ahead and read verse 12. You're right. That's, I wanted to have to add that too. Mm-hmm. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's right. So, yeah, that's that making it very, very clear there. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about um, more in this paragraph. So, it's to be kept holy unto the Lord, and men, us, should do a few things. We should be preparing our own hearts. So this is in relation to the Lord's Day. How do you prepare your heart to worship? Or do you even think about that? <laughs> Something that I do... Um on Sundays, while I'm driving, I actually pray, and uh, it's good to just have the radio turned off and try to uh, use that time uh, before coming into church. Absolutely, that's great. What else? You know, the one when I studied this this uh, part here, uh, this uh, yeah. topic here, that really helped me a lot in my worships on, on Sunday and I really made a point to set it aside. You know, before you know it's almost like a you know, you treat the, the worship as the just of the, the yeah. time that we uh, <laughs> we are uh, on the church and we're doing the worship. After this after I studied this I, uh, I went back to the, uh, the original principle and uh-huh. sundown to sundown. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, and it it really is the, uh, I mean, some people, you know, can reduce down. Okay, I'm observing this by by attending an hour and a half worship service, you know. But as we'll see here, it's it's more than that, and it's a setting aside of the day. Um, so preparing your own hearts, I personally believe that that should begin Saturday night. Um, Making sure you have proper rest, making sure that you're in an attitude of prayer, praying for the preacher, the leader. I make it a habit and our family worship Saturday night. Um, uh, you know, we'll pray for those that we know will, will have a role in the worship service. And, um, you know, obviously, if I'm the one preaching, I mean, I'm, I'm praying all week, um, you know, that the Lord might be pleased to bless the week efforts. But. So preparing your own heart uh, is important and you know, having extra time in the morning, uh, you know, to uh, whether it's, you know, driving, I would say even before you get in a car to drive, just to carve out extra time. Like, you know, you don't need radio and TV. Hopefully you're not doing that before church. But I mean, you know, um, you know maybe a sermon, but, uh, you know, but extra time of just reading and prayer. And, you know, even other helps, you know, like these prayers of Spurgeon, the, there's the Puritan prayers, Valley of Vision. There's like, there's a, all kinds of devotionals that you can use also. I mean, the word is a primary, right? But And then your prayer directly, private communion with him. Um, but then it says ordering their common affairs aforehand, <laughs> the old language. Um, what do you think of with that? So, in other words, like, if you're going to order your affairs ahead of time, 
In other words, you want to set aside the day and you don't want to be distracted with the way I look at it. Everything that we do the other six days, we don't want to have to do any of that on the seventh day. So, um, you know, maybe I get gas twice a week, you know, whatever days it is, but I'm going to make sure certainly Saturday that I've got enough gas that I don't have to be interrupted or, you know, and this, you know, it's happened a couple times where we're on our way and it's like, oh, we got to stop and get gas, you know. Um, thankfully, that hasn't happened in a, in a long time. But I mean, what's that do? It sets you, you, you're coming later, it interrupts the flow. And so, and also with food, you know, um, I mean, to, you know, make sure that you've got food for your family, gas, setting aside those affairs ahead of time. And, and it's, it's so that you're not distracted with those everyday cares on this one day. And and then to observe a holy rest all the day from our, your own works, words, and thoughts. And so that kind of, I think that's pulling from the Isaiah 58, 13 that we looked at, um, ceasing. Um, yes, yeah, so, so turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day. Call the Sabbath the delight, a holy day to the Lord, honorable and honor it, detesting your own ways and seeking from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word. Um, you know, the speaking your own word. There's different people that have interpreted that different ways. I don't. I don't think that it means that we can't talk about our callings or maybe even okay. You know, maybe at some point talking about sports or something like that. But if that's the focus then that's imbalanced, okay? The focus should be the Lord. How have you been? How can I be praying for you? What is the Lord teaching you? What have we learned from the sermon? Like the the preponderance of the day should be filled with those things um, that have to do with God, not speaking your own words and talking about your own accomplishments and those kinds of things. So your own works, words, and thoughts. and then, and about worldly enjoyment and recreations. Now, some have taken this to mean that, you know, you can't go out and kick a ball with your son or something or, or whatever. And um, I, I just, I, I don't see that. Uh, and some have taken that to extremes. But I think the idea is if your focus of the day is worldly enjoyments and recreations that, Hey, we're having a, a big beach party or beach day or whatever, and worldly enjoyments. Let's go to the Charger game or whatever, you know, ditch church and that kind of thing. I think the idea here is that that kind of stuff um, should not take, should not trump the Lord's day. Um, I like this idea of this holy rest doesn't mean, oh, I've just got to be on my knees praying the whole time or in a worship service, but it is a. It's not inactivity of just, oh, you know, in an ad, ad prayer, but redirected activity. So you deeds of mercy, um, deeds of, uh, you know, serving the saints and those kinds of things. It's you're active on that day. And I mean, like Spurgeon used to say, I mean, a, a walk in the garden between morning and evening worship or whatever to seeing God's creation. Sometimes we'll, we would take the kids out. We'd do that or kick the ball around too because I mean when you have like multiple services you know 
two in the morning, one in the evening, which we did for many years, there's only a few hours there. And when you have young children, they need to get energy out. And so to go and spend 30 minutes of running around or tossing a ball or whatever is perfectly fine um, in, in my estimation. Uh, and then taking up the whole time, and this is where the whole time, <laughs> um, I think the idea is the overall part of the day in public and private exercises of worship. So the public meetings of the church, it should be a priority to attend all of them. I mean, if you're a member of a church, you should be at, at all of them. Um, you know, and that's, you know, some are hindered. There's different, there's different reasons why some cannot make all of them. There's things that come up where, where you miss, uh, um, you know, because of different things, but that should be the goal and desire. And then the uh, private exercises, as the, the Puritans would call it, but that's that, that what I was talking about earlier, having that extra time with the Lord, maybe in the morning for um, us, we would read through books or have longer devotions in the afternoon as a family, you know, together, and then even in the evening, you know, to have time as well. And so, and, and these things are an absolute blessing. It's, it's not a burden. It's, it's the recharge. It's the highlight of the week that gives you the momentum and the energy to go ahead and plow through the week that is in front of you. Um, so personal worship, you know, directed to God, family worship, and then corporate worship with God's people and hospitality, you know, being around the saints is so edifying, you know, sharpening one another and um, we love having hospitality. We love being invited to other people's home to have that hospitality in the Lord's day, you know. Um, so there's there's additional opportunities there. Now, what about work? What about uh, if you're forced to work? Well, if, you, if you're following the, <clears throat> the creation principle, morning and evening, as, you know, uh, you even see that with, with Adam. I mean, this morning and evening principle, and then the next day, and you know, uh, then it said on the Sabbath day, you know, the Lord rested, mm. uh, placing a foundation for you know, uh, it to be followed. Uh, some people would say that, you know, um, after, you know, in the evening, after, you know, you've gone mm-hmm. to church and you've done those things, if there's after uh, you spent time with the Lord and you've set that day aside, then there could be time for after that period when you'll be able to do those things like work. And the, the, the Old Testament Sabbath um, was sundown to sundown. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's a lot of wisdom to that. Um, you know, other people's it's sunrise to sunrise or whatever, or sunrise to sunset or, but, you know, again, preparing the night before gives you that extra time as you're resting and as you awake so that as the sun would go down on a Sunday evening that, you know, you, you, you can say with hopefully with a clear conscience that you've done these things, but some people are, I mean, there is, uh, deeds of necessity. I mean, nurses, there's police and all of these kind of people, doctor that, you know, that they have to work the, the issue. So there are military duty days, that kind of stuff. You, you're, you've enlisted in the military, you've got to honor your superiors. And so, but the problem is, is when you have people and I've dealt with people a few times with uh, several times over the years, but I get double time on Sunday. (laughs) 
and it's the motive is money yeah and that trumps the worship of god that's the wrong motive <laughs> there's one thing to being hey i'm in the military or i'm a nurse or or even like Massimo, his conscience is afflicted that he is forced to work uh, as a server on Sunday nights. Um, he doesn't want to do that. It's late Sunday afternoon usually. Uh, but, I mean, praise God that he's able to devote most of the day, and he goes. But the, the line of work that he's in, Sunday's one of the biggest days. And so you can't just say, <laughs> you know. Uh, I think also um, you can, I mean, you should, if you're applying for a job that is open on Sundays, you should let them know right up front that you want Sundays, a guarantee of Sundays off, because I think there's some laws on the books where they're supposed to honor that. Um, but so there's those those kinds of considerations. But um, to as much as it depends upon you, though, to try to like you've got a new job at a restaurant, uh, you might be asked to work. A Sunday. No, you, you, you went in there right off the bat, didn't you? Mm-hmm. What did you tell them? That I was unavailable and so <laughs> And did they say, well, we're not going to hire you? No. They said, we want you anyway. Okay, we'll find, you know, and that's a whole other thing. I mean, it's, and that's one of the reasons why I, I just, it, on rare occasions, we may go out on a Sunday afternoon or something, but the more, if you're frequenting restaurants every week, you're making other people work that, you know, otherwise, maybe they wouldn't be in worship but um you know there's there's a lot of christians that are forced to work in those environments that would would love to have have it have it off and so if there was less christians frequenting these places maybe they could have that day off but